0: Welcome to The Family Room, sponsored by Sprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, and wisdom centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, right here on AM 1160, The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic radio.
1: Welcome into another week in The Family Room. This is Craig Wiesmeyer, and I'm here with Mari Cleveland. Good morning. We're sorry John will not be joining us uh, on this episode. He is uh, diligently doing some other things for God. So keep us in him in your prayers. You know, Mari, we've got a conversation today with uh, Father Robert Sirico, who um, founded the Acton Institute and also wrote a book, interestingly, on the economics of the parables, which I found interesting from a standpoint of uh, combining religion and religion and economics or mathematics and how that all came about. I know you've done some research. So what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far?
2: What I love about uh, Father's book, and he's going to break it open for us today, is that he turns on its head some of the assumptions that people have made about what the parables are actually saying. And um, he takes it to a level where it's hitting us at our heart. So it's really not about you know, big picture government systems, this is the way we should go or, or you know, Christians are, you know, need to be more in tune with being a socialist or being uh, or, or being a capitalist, either one, but more in tune with what is God calling each of us to do um, and who are we supposed to be following and who is supposed to be our God at all times and what does that mean as far as money and how we spend our time and as we read the parables, what is the unique message for each of us and how we're supposed to be living um, our lives so that 's what i that 's what i one of the things that I loved about about this book and um just w- once again how it turned some of the the assumptions that we have about what Jesus is trying to say on its on his head
1: yeah i think in in a religious setting, we tend to separate uh, economics, capitalism from faith altogether, you know it's everybody well the love you know money is the root of all evil. It's really the love of money. It's about the virtue or lack of virtue. So I think Father will talk about that as well. So um, I guess let's start with an opening prayer, and then we can fully introduce Father. That would be great. So Father, do you mind opening us in a prayer?
0: I'd be delighted to. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Most holy God, we look to you in our weakness and in our scarcity. We are aware that you are... The fullness of everything we desire, you are the fullness of our lives, that we came from you and we are destined to be with you for eternity. Bless our conversation and illumine our hearts and revitalize our spirits that we may faithfully serve you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord forever and ever.
2: Amen. 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 Amen.
0: Thank you.
2: Amen. Well, welcome, Father Srika. We're so very glad to have you in the family room.
0: Thank you, Mary. It's good to be with you.
2: Yes, thank you. And so, um, as Craig just said, you are the, the president emeritus and co-founder of the Acton Institute, and which is a right. think tank, um, and your, the mission is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles that's a mouthful but i think it says a lot um but also you um are the pastor emeritus of sacred heart of jesus parish in grand Rap- rapids michigan um and one yeah. of the things that's fascinating too is you're you are a writer of many things uh, religious political economic social matters um but you've been published by everyone from the wall street journal to the london financial times um to national review as well as writing books and so it's kind of fun to see that there's quite a paradox about you right you're you're a priest but you are also um have this great heart for economics and helping break it open in new ways so god's had you obviously on quite a journey to get to to where you are today and to the fact that you are you are all of those different um you've got all of those different capabilities and gifts and share them in such beautiful ways. Would you share a bit with our listeners about the highlights of God's calling on your life?
0: well yeah i'm I'm happy to do that. I grew up in a, a working class family in Brooklyn, New York, Italian. American family, but situated in a very diverse neighborhood, you know, Brooklyn in the 1950s was here comes everybody (laughs) kind of thing. So uh, um, some of my uh, closest neighbors were Jewish people. I can still keep keep a kosher kitchen, by the way, You (laughs) because when you're in your friend's homes, you had to know, you know, if you're eating dairy, you use dairy and you put it in the dairy sink, you don't mix it with meat, that kind of thing. So uh, it was an enriching experience uh, growing up in New York. But in, um, in my teens, this is right about the time of the Second Vatican Council, I drifted from the faith. Um, I had questions about the faith, and at the time it seemed that the priests that I went to were distracted. They, they weren't particularly interested. I remember one priest I went to for spiritual advice. I was thirteen years old. He said, Oh, just read Tom Sawyer and be a normal kid. Don't oh. don't worry about religion too much. Can you imagine a priest saying that? And uh so uh for for years I was away, I was uh looking, I was always looking. Um, uh, and uh, among my Protestant friends, among the charismatic movement that was beginning, the Jesus movement, by the time I was in my uh, late teens, early 20s, I was living in, on the west coast of the United States, and I was involved with the Jesus movement. Now, there's just a new movie that came out about that, <laughs> set back some memories of that. I was never much of a hippie, but, but I w- was around all of that. And even at the end of that, there was something that still wasn't satisfying, and uh, I became involved in politics in California, um, street protests, the anti-war movement, all of the different various social movements that now have become very prominent movements. I was in right at the beginning of a lot of them. But then um, I met someone who began to confront me on the illogic of the socialist commitments that I had in those days, Mm. And he got me thinking. And over a period of about six months, I had a real reversion or conversion away from the left-wing thinking to understanding a little bit more of economics, but I still hadn't been to university yet. The interesting thing though, if if I were to point to one thing, it's that that study of economics is what led me back to my faith. Because as I thought about the right to private property, for instance. Uh, the question came up, well, wh- why do human beings have the right to private property? And that led to the question, what are human beings? Mm. As I began to ponder those deep philosophical thoughts, all of the stuff that I learned in catechism, <laughs> it's seven years old, you know, <laughs> began to, it was the Baltimore catechism. That's why, by the way, I'm, I'm very much in favor of rote learning for kids because you put it in their heads and later on, they understand it. It's like, you know, singing the Star Spangled Banner. If you ever heard a little kid sing the Star Spangled Banner, it's hysterical. They don't know what they're saying. <laughs> but later, on they think about it and they, they understand it. And that's what happened to me. And I came back then uh, to my faith uh, through the administration of a, a great priest uh, who just loved me and loved looked past all of my confusions and all of my paradoxes. And uh, that, over time, rekindled uh, the vocation that I had as a very young kid when I would play Mass in Brooklyn. (laughs) And uh, I went to seminary, well, I recovered the faith, and then went to university, then went to seminary, and was ordained a priest. So I've just celebrated my uh, 34th anniversary as a priest.
2: Congratulations. That's wonderful. You know, and I love hearing people's faith journeys because God has such a beautiful way of taking what has been planted in your heart. Hopefully, um, as you said, you know, your parents did give you that foundation, that formation early on, but then he takes something else that we're, that we love, right. Or that really piques our interests and then marries the two and calls, calls them, uh, calls you to him in that way. So who knew that it could be economics, (laughs) you know, that's fascinating.
0: I'm a great believer that there's nothing in this world that can't be the occasion for the discovery of God. Yeah. You know, it's like Jared Manley Hopkins, you know, that Jesuit poet, the convert to the church. He wrote a beautiful poem and it said um, just the, the opening of it is the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will break forth like shining from shook foil, it's a marvelous lesson about how the world is so charged with God that anywhere you can bump into God, and that's what I did. If you, if you follow Him and and are willing to to trust Him, and sometimes that's scary. Yeah, that's
1: yeah. beautiful. What was interesting too is you mentioned your early journey. Um, what comes to my mind though is a couple of things. You know bad teaching, bad catechesis from a priest that kind of led you away, but right. good uh logical thinking with an open heart that brought you back. Cause I think today we live in a world where we are not taught to think. We're not taught to think critically or logically. We're taught to all. we're taught to delve into our feelings mm-hmm. about something yeah. and just hold true to something like that. And I think it's awesome when you could, what it sounded like you could be on this farther left fringe that was about a lot of emotion. There was truth in it, but a lot of emotion, but your openness to learning and understanding it. i mean, To me, it's like having a conversation with my kids and saying, it's okay not to understand everything about our faith. It's okay to go to God and say, I'm not sure I believe that, but humbly sit in it and Mm -hmm. go seek out the answers. Mm and come to the conclusion. So how did that experience for you lead you to write a book that would simply be on the economics of the parables? Because now, I mean, you've really combined traditional education in a finance sense, now with Catholic teaching and tradition. I mean, how did those two get married together?
0: Well, let me begin with what I mean by economics, because I don't mean by economics public policy or financial policy or mathematics. That's what usually people think of when they think of economics. Um, I believe economics begins in the Garden of Eden, by, by my definition of what economics is. What economics is, is human action, human beings acting to satisfy their needs, and we all have needs, we all have wants. And I say in the Garden of Eden because God places man and woman in the context of scarcity, mm-hmm. right? There's a scarcity of resources. And what economics is, is discerning what the best use of what you have, what your resources are, to satisfy the needs that you have. So God places man and woman in a garden, not in the jungle. <laughs> That that means that the garden what's the difference? The garden takes it requires work, mm-hmm. it requires care. And that's what gives rise to the questions of economics. And what I love about the meditation and the connection between the parables and economics is because it really is exactly the revelation of God in a way. That comes to us in the incarnation of Christ, because when when Christ comes into the world to redeem the world, he doesn't come from outside of the world. He comes from within the world. Mm -hmm. He comes from the womb of the Blessed Virgin. And so he's not E.T. He's not an extraterrestrial. (laughs) Uh, He's man. He's fully man and fully God. And what the parables do is kind of do that. They 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 begin telling stories about human beings in this real world. But then they point you beyond this world. So you you hear this phrase repeated in in a lot of the parables, the kingdom of God may be likened unto, and then there's whatever the story is. But what it's pointing you to isn't the pearl of great price. It's using the pearl of great price and the value that's placed on the pearl and the recognition of its value by the, the, the man who buys it to reveal to you something that is of great price, of, of supreme value, which is God. And all of the parables do that in various ways.
2: Yeah. That's I, I love how you describe that. And then and then by, and then by extension, then each of us is to point to him as well. Um which is yeah. Yeah. So, listeners, if you are just joining us, you are here in the family room, and we are speaking today with Father Robert Sirico, who has written a wonderful book called The Economics of the Parables, which you can find on Amazon. And once again, he's going to take you on a journey that's very different than what you normally think about when you're thinking about both the parables as well as economics itself, as he just described. Um, So, in, in talking about that, Father, you know, you just said take something, you know, here in this world, very tangible. In many ways, I'm um, in pointing to God. We in the family room we talk about how the kingdom of God begins at home, and um, and I know for many of us it did. So, if you think about our listeners, our audience in the family room, um, people who are um, married couples, parents, grandparents, what application will this book have for them?
0: Well, you know, you can write your own parables. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, I, I can just imagine a mom. I, I was a spiritual director for a mom once, and she was talking about I, it's so hard to pray the Rosary. She said when the kids are around, and she had oh, I forget how many seven kids or something like this. Uh, how do I do that? I said, Why don't you write your own Rosary? Why don't you write your own Mysteries? Because what the Rosary is or encounters largely of the life of uh, the Blessed Virgin. Well, why why don't you do that? And so she wrote these decades of the Rosary related to to her kids and her family and stuff. And uh, wouldn't that be a great parable? I mean, rather than the, um, let's say, the sower who sows uh, in the field, you know, and the, the the seed falls upon various kinds of ground. What about baking toll house cookings? Uh, <laughs> what, what, what spiritual truths could be discovered in that, in the mixing of the batter and the the quality of the ingredients and the, the kid who's licking the, uh, the spoon, you know, <laughs> Some things that happen. What's the lesson uh, and the joy of a child enjoying the, 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 the licking off of the spoon that tells us something about something that satisfies and satiates our lives for all of eternity? I mean, everything Mm -hmm. become the occasion because why? Because the world doesn't make sense without God as the reference.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great.
1: I like that. You can really take your everyday and encounter God. If you're intentional, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know,
1: doing that, let God speak to you through those simple things. To your point about, you know, economics led you back to the faith. Right. I mean, God can take the most simple things. I remember when I was going through an experience as a teenager and um, was really trying to be intentional about hearing God and praying. And I remember being at a bonfire and somebody threw something in the bonfire. And just as clearly as if, because my father was next to me, would have said it to it. I remember God saying, so consuming is the fire of my love. Mm. That was just one of those experiences out of something very basic. So I appreciate the fact that you would give somebody that advice. Now, to pivot a little bit, one of the things you had talked about was the seven deadly sins. Yes. And, you know, oftentimes we are focused on the wrong thing there. So would you talk more about that in context of your book and, and what you want us to get out of that?
0: Sure. Well, you know, the the seven deadly sins, we all know, you know, there's uh, lust and Rage and gluttony, and you know all, all the mm-hmm. different ones. And what we tend to do is think of the material dimensions of these things as sinful. But what I try to do in in that section, where it's just a paragraph, really, it just hit me as I was writing the book. You know, it's not um, it's not sex that's sinful. It's lust that's mm-hmm. sinful. Mm-hmm. It's not the material world that's sinful. It's making the material world your God. That's the lesson. And if you go through all the seven deadly sins, it's not even um, anger that's sinful. It's wrath that's sinful. Uh, And so what we have to do is look beyond just the material and look for things to blame ourselves. How many people come into confession and they confess gluttony, and they're as skinny as a rail? Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. Well, they are committing gluttony by uh, making uh, f- food uh, an idol. Yeah. Um, I guess you don't have to consume a lot of it to make it an idol, but anything can become that. You know, people can make uh, their ministry, quote-unquote, uh, idols if it's feeding their ego rather than really ministering the love of God. So it, it, what this requires of, of us is a deeper contemplation of who God is and what he's calling us to ultimately, so that we relinquish the priority of the physicality of our world and see in it the revelation of God.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, and you take us deeper, just just as you just did with that insight, deeper into um, our understanding of things like the seven deadly sins and then deeper into the parables that also cut to the heart of the issue, right? So in your book... you really talk about how Jesus is, um, it, it's for each of us individually. I mean, that's what I got out of, you know, uh, understanding more about what you wrote about. It's each of our hearts and how Jesus is speaking to each of us personally and, and individually, not, not how we're supposed to form governments or governmental programs or things like that, but who we are supposed to be individually. Um, what comments do you have about that? And just, just, um, kind of breaking open, beginning to break open the the book and the contents of the book a little bit for our listeners.
0: just to begin, Mari, where you you started there, you know, if we begin with, well, how do we build government? Uh, How do we build politics and all of that and neglect who it is (laughs) that's doing the building? Mm. In other words, we forget who we are. If we don't have a right Anthropological understanding, the nature of the human person. You know, um, I think it was St. John Paul II made this quip. He said that anthropology is Christology, mm-hmm. and Christology is anthropology. What does he mean by that? Well, Christology is the study of Christ, and anthropology is the study of man. And what St. John Paul was saying was, that if you study man down to his core, you come up with Christ. And if you study Christ down to his core, you come up with man. That is who who human beings ought to be. And so you begin at that more fundamental level. You understand that the human person has an intrinsic dignity by nature. It's not given to us by a government it comes with the package, uh, and that we are both individual from the moment of our conception, that is, we are our own uh, biological genetic entity, but we are in relationship to our mother in the womb. And everything after that, the whole of our lives after that, is this tension between these two realities, that our individuality and our social reality in our relationships with other people, um, and, and then also our corporeality, our physical reality, but also our transcendence. So we're made from the dust of the earth, but into whom has been breathed the breath of life.
3: Mm.
0: So if you don't understand that about the human person, then you're going to just, like a lot of the welfare systems, just take into consideration the physical needs of an individual. It's, you know, I mean, but that's the way we treat animals, right? If an animal is thirsty, you give it water. If it's hungry, you give it something to eat. If it's cold, you put it in the barn. But that's not what human beings are. We are physical, but we're so much more than that. You could you could feed a baby, but if you don't hug a baby and love a baby and look at a baby, the baby's going to die or at least be profoundly diminished, in
3: the
1: whole of its life, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, I mean it's a lot of people that adopt children from other countries that yeah. are treated like that. They yeah. have they have that um, attachment problem because right. nobody ever ever loved them, and it's um, it's it's just kind of funny in, in our world today. Because what you're what you're talking about, though, you said it wasn't a business book, it wasn't a a political book. It is in the sense of you're redefining what. Politics, right. business, and everything should really be under the the umbrella right. of what did God intend? What was God? because everything you're saying is counter to what you hear today at all of these protests and rallies you know we've been diminished almost like animals, right you got an echelon of people that are like you're you're the herd, we're going to lead you where we want you to go, but they don't let you flourish as an individual, and we're not kind of embracing the individual and i think the other thing that struck me um and we only got a few minutes left here um in the first half but yeah you know, as you talked about the seven deadly sins how we look at those tying that frankly to how we look at people in our communities that may represent some of those s- sins mm. how oftentimes we look at their sin meaning you live a certain lifestyle or you have a certain you know belief that's really counter to what we would consider Christian. And all we focus on is the sin and we lose the humanity of the person. As you talk about spiritual direction, you know, I've been in spiritual direction. I, I offer spiritual direction. Where is God in it? What is broken within that individual that leads them into that life? But we seem to be so focused on the negativity, we're losing sight of loving the person for who they are. How do we reconcile that? I mean, because we're all trying to make our point. How do we change our view of that?
0: Well, here, here's the image I would give you. To, to We love very, images. To <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I do too. And that's what the parables are, right? They're images. Um, and it's the image of we, we look at people who are grasping onto something that we see is harmful to them. But they're holding on to it because it's what they, they think they need. And we come along and say, give me that. Put that aside. That's hurting you. Rather than displaying to them, showing them something that's far more beautiful, far more uh, fulfilling, and saying, why don't, you, why don't you take this? If we do this in the right way, they relinquish what they're grasping, and they'll grasp what we're offering. But it really takes confidence in the gift that we think we have, first and foremost. And that's what we're lacking in the church today. I think that a lot of our leadership has forgotten the gospel is really true. We don't have to dress it up. We don't have to make it relevant. The truth is always relevant. So what we need to do is just clarify it and present it and love people.
1: Yeah, That was profound in a very simple way, though. Thank you
2: very much. It is. Um, So when we come back from break, Father, we're going to ask you to dig deeper into the book itself, because you do do such a beautiful job of um, you you talk about 13 different parables. And it's funny how you had 12 originally, but then people said, oh, wait, you got to talk about this one as well. Right. Right? So you take us through about 13 different parables, and we won't have time for all 13, but I think we could get into a few of them and have you really break open for us Um, just the learning and the understanding. And as you said, you know, economics is really um, how we act to satisfy our needs. And so how are we taught to act to satisfy our needs? What are the moral implications? What are the virtuous implications? You know, as we as we learn from these parables individually, each one of us. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to hearing about that right after our break.
0: We'll be right
1: back inside the family room in moments. Sponsored by Sprite on The Quest.
4: St. Joseph was a man of few words. In fact, not a single word of his was recorded in Scripture. But the Father of Jesus spoke abundantly in his silence, and he certainly gave us a lot to talk about. Want to go deeper? Listen to the St. Joseph series on your Quest app and on thequestatlanta.com.
0: We're back in the family room, sponsored by Verse Bright, right here on AM 1160, The Quest.
1: We've been talking to Father Robert Sirico about his book, The Economics of the Parables, available on Amazon. You know, Father, great job, first half. I think mean, you've really enlightened our, our listeners. And if you don't mind, would you, as we as we talked about your faith journey, would you enlighten us about one of your family room memories from maybe when you were growing up? Because when I hear Brooklyn, Italian, I mean, lots got to be going on in that house.
0: Oh, good Lord, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> lots
0: of debate. Well, you know, I, I come from the era where, and I, I gather this isn't as common as it was, but every night we had dinner Mm -hmm. my mom worked two jobs two part-time jobs uh, but she always was home to make a meal for us and i remember many many uh, of course i'm italian so i've got to bring up food right (laughs) so we had all the food and and depending on what happened in the day i mean the the various memories i have are you know uh the big news stories sometimes you you know we'd be discussing what what had happened? The Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember that one, mm. uh, and uh, you know the the things going on in our immediate family, our extended family. My my mom had uh, uh, thirteen. Uh, well, she was one of thirteen. Mm. Oh, wow. uh, and Lord, every Sunday we'd go to my grandparents' house, and all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles. It was pandemonium. <laughs>
2: uh, that is wonderful. And you know
0: what I learned, I mean, there's a lot that I learned. That was my real first education, but I would just, two things. I learned storytelling. My mother was a great raconteur. You know, you, you asked me at the beginning, cause you did a little background check on me about my brother as an actor. Uh, and I'm a, a priest, you know, a preacher. Um, where did we learn that? We learned that from our mom because <laughs> she could tell stories. Uh, we also learned how to interact socially. I mean, you couldn't, But help, you know, uh, bouncing off cousins and aunts and uncles with different personalities. So those are are real rich memories, not all of them pleasant, (laughs) but all of them enriching and uh, I find very valuable for who I am today.
2: Yeah, I love your memory because we can totally see it. I think we can all see, we can envision um, both your family table as well as getting together at your grandparents and just, just, as you said, the chaos, the pandemonium, but also just so much cool stuff. But I think what I love about your family memory, too, is it's really an encouragement to us. To remind us when things get in the way, when sports or other things get in the way of us being able to sit down and enjoy a meal together. I remember when my son was about 12 or so, he played um, flag football. um, Or actually, I'm sorry, he'd gone from flag football, he played regular football for a little while. And um, it was interesting, the practice happened to be right at dinner time, And he told us partway through the season, and it was only one season of his life, he told us partway through the season, the thing that he missed the most was having dinner together as a family
0: wonderful yeah, isn't that yeah interesting? You, you, you planted the seeds there yeah there it is
2: yeah and i didn't even know that 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 he noticed <laughs> or that that was so important but you're exactly right so it was interesting um so uh, father before the break we were talking obviously about your book the economics of the parables and um we mentioned that you uh had thirteen different parables that you chose for the book and you wrote about. Um would you break up on a few of those and what your scholarship, what your research led you to understand Um, about those economics and maybe how we can apply them to some of the moral decisions that we make every day, because I think we don't oftentimes think about that, that they are there for us to to make our own moral decisions. Um, I know there were so many great ones and that link, especially to family, whether it's um, the prodigal son um, or, as you say, the merciful father or the good Samaritan. But um, would you choose uh, several and go ahead and start talking through them for us?
0: Well, let's start with, uh, because you mentioned family, let's talk with the pro- uh, prodigal son. Um, this is uh, this is the 13th parable, by the way. You know, I, I had done 12, uh, and the editors immediately bought the book, but they said, you have to do the prodigal son. And I thought, economics, prodigal son. Okay, let me see what I can do. And I only had a month to write it. <laughs> but the more i got into it the more i could really see and and the, the the reason i say it's the the story of the merciful father this is what the commentators say they point this out because the center of the story is not the prodigal son the center of the story the anchor uh around whom the story pivots is the father and the father is in relationship to these two sons one the younger the other the older who doesn't really come into play until later in the parable and, of course, the more interesting character in the sense that, you know, he has this dramatic life is the one who takes the inheritance, goes and spends it, ends up in the pigsty and comes back. Um It's interesting. You just mentioned your son who was formed and he had an idea and they said that you didn't know was there mm-hmm. until he missed the meals. I think of that in relation to that prodigal son, because he has dissipated all of the money. He's sitting in a very unpleasant surrounding, and something in him says, "I know what I'll do. I will go back to my father." And then he begins to make his little confessional list. You know, like the kids come into the confessional, and I can hear their their piece <laughs> of paper with all their sins on it. You know, uh, and he does that. He says, "And I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I am not worthy to be called your son." Uh, receive me as your your servant, and he gets up and he goes back to his father. And while he was yet away off, this is the beautiful story of the father running down. There's such an emotive encounter, uh, and he begins to recite his list, and you notice that the father cuts him off. He never finishes his list. Mm. He just restores him, and then brings him home, and then there's rejoicing. Um, now that's what we always think of, and we think of the the story of the prodigal son. But I think equally important is this older son, who is also portrayed outside the house. Mm -hmm. He's out in the fields. He's out with his servants. And he hears the celebration going on. He says, what's going on? Oh, your, 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 your younger brother has come back, and your father has killed the fatted calf. And Um, And now there's rejoicing, and he goes, and he's still outside the house, the younger son, the the whole story ends, I'm sorry, the older son, the whole story ends with the older son, I picture him on the back porch, uh, not in the celebration, and the father comes out again and says, but your your brother was dead, and he's alive, he's lost, he's been found. You must come in and rejoice. And then it ends. And this, by the way, I think is one of the reasons for the enduring quality um, and enduring nature of the parables, because uh, we keep coming back to this, and it keeps coming up in our head. What if he had gone in? Or what if he had stayed out? We simply don't know the resolution to the story, so it stays alive in our mind. Now, the economic dimension of this is that both of these sons are seeing their father in terms of the material benefit. Mm -hmm. The young one who takes his inheritance, the old one who wants and has it but never realized that he had it. Yeah, uh, and and all the complexities of Jewish law in terms of inheritance rights and all of the, the questions of economics that relate to that occurring in this context. By the way, and this you can use this if you're ever teaching in a class or or tell it to your priest because it's a great opening uh, story for if you're preaching on the Prodigal Son. A little girl was uh, in Sunday school class and the teacher had taught all about the prodigal son, the whole story. And at the end said, um, okay, now boys and girls, at the end of the story, who is the only one who was unhappy at the end of this story? And little Susie gets up and says, I know, I know. Okay, Susie, stand up and tell the class. And Susie answers, the fatted cat. <laughs> so, That's uh, funny.
1: <laughs> I was glad
0: the opportunity to reflect on that, you know, that, that the editors really pushed that one.
2: Well, and as you tell that, as you tell that story, and we're, we're familiar, obviously, with that parable, um, but just that idea of, once again, um, kind of a lexio Divina opportunity to put ourselves, you know, who do you relate to? Do you relate to that, the younger son? Do you relate to the older son? Do you relate to the father? And um, when I look back at the definition that you gave us for economics, human beings acting to satisfy their needs— it comes out so clearly in that story, right? Each of them, you know, acting to satisfy their needs. And then it catches us up short. You know, who am I being? Am I the older son? You know, the one who has everything and yet still isn't satisfied or doesn't, doesn't recognize I I do have everything. And instead I'm being envious or looking at what somebody else got versus what I already have. Um, right? Right. Am I the younger son? Who's just being wasteful with it? Um, and and who is that, that merciful father who continues to give you and give you and give you? Um, and I love the way one of the things that you mentioned was we can think about this as far as in our human lives and our realities of what's going on, um, inheritance, you know, just the whole topic of inheritance and, and what right. it means for us today. As you've talked to people about this, what is, have there been any other insights around how people are applying this parable to their own reality of dealing with inheritance situations in their families?
0: You know, in my pastoral experience um, and in just my my human experience, some of the most um, sad family experiences come in the face of inheritance. There's just a a recent thing of um, the kids joined together against the father
3: Mm.
0: uh, to demand, um, you know, this— this money and the whole and there's a big estate and all of this stuff and uh, they settled it it was all settled i sent them by the way copies of um, bleak house mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever, you know the story it's a victorian story of of a whole estate a whole inheritance dissipated the lawyers were enriched by it not the family and the end of the ending of this story is that the kids now are alienated from the father. They got they got money. Mm. They didn't get as much as they would have gotten, because the father had already planned for them to have all of this when he died, and they preempted that. They wanted it here and now, mm. and they got it, uh, but they got a, a fraction of what they would have gotten. It's it's very sad when you see the negative. Part of it. On the other hand, I know another family, and there there were uh, four uh, four girls, and these girls have worked so beautifully together. No trace of oh, I want that. M- uh, mother had that. And she told me I could have that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there was none of that. No trace of that. And these four girls are together in there aiding one another in their own grief and the loss of their parents uh, and the children. It's just so edifying and beautiful to see what comes out of that on a more substantial level than just what's in the bank account.
2: Mm, That is a great example.
1: Yeah, you know how in today's world we could live those examples if we really prayed and thought about it like you did not looking at somebody else saying, oh, I want what they've got because, you know, somebody gave them more than I do. It's not fair. I deserve. And once again, when God's in charge and you look at everything in light of the church and the teachings, it teaches you how to live in community and in government and things like that. So before I ask another question, uh, listeners, you are here in the family room with us. We're speaking with Father Robert Sirico on his book, The Economics of the Parables. And if you don't mind... Um would you go to the other parable um and break it open for us on the good Samaritan
0: oh that's a beautiful one you know uh, the good Samaritan's a story, and the, this is one everybody knows this story you know we even use by the way it's a, a very good example there there are many um phrases that occur words that occur in the parables that have just kind of uh entered into common parlance, for instance the word talent mm. We, we hear the word talent, and we think, "Oh, you know, uh, it's a, a gift and ability that somebody has." But it really comes from the parables, and it's a, a monetary unit. Mm-hmm. And this word Samaritan, good Samaritan law. So just be a good Samaritan about this. Uh, but when you when you read this, now uh, a lot of people who do politicize the scriptures uh, will immediately say that the story of the good Samaritan. Is the moral justification and the Christian mandate for the welfare state because uh, everybody has uh, and some people don't, and we have to create a governmental structure to provide for their needs. Uh, I, I'm going to leave aside the whole uh, political debate about that, but just look at the parable and see if that's what the parable is saying. I would say that the parable is saying just exactly the opposite. Mm that this is not about bureaucratizing or outsourcing the care for the poor this is about a mandate to encounter the poor and if you if you really you said mari um that uh, you know in uh, in alexo divina that we we should uh, ident- you know look at the characters we identify with i would say by the way we should also look at the characters we don't identify with <laughs> and put ourselves in there because that's yeah. where you also all of a sudden get a, a new insight when it's, this is not somebody I would identify with, but here I am. Uh, in this case, the man um, is a is an outcast. The Samaritan, the hero of the story, is the outcast, really, and he's a businessman. Obviously, he's a businessman because he has business on the Jericho Road. And if you go to uh, Israel and you you Go from from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see the road on the uh, from the freeway. You can see it's still there,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, this long, and you can imagine the ancient world how isolated this was, and there was a little inn for people who recognized that you know they needed maybe they had to stay overnight in order to get going on the journey, um, and this Samaritan encounters this wretched man in a circumstance that was dangerous so that there were thieves around. Obviously this guy is left for dead, you know, even, even in a a less isolated situation, we tend to kind of back off people who are on the street. You know, now you're sleeping on the street. You don't know what they are. Sometimes they smell that kind of thing. So this Samaritan is looking at this and rather than stepping over him or moving around him, he comes to his aid, and everything he does to help this man comes from himself. The wine and the oil, the hoisting him on his own beast, it says. He, he, he puts him on his, his um, donkey or, or horse. Now, what would that have been like? I and mean, you just really kind of enter into that. It meant that he had to physically pick him up which meant that he would have been close to him. He would have smelt whatever the smells were that were there. His clothes would have been soiled with whatever soil would have been there. And he puts him on the beast and brings him back to the inn and then puts himself in hock Mm. for the man's care. He says to the innkeeper, look, you know me. I've got credit with you. Here's some money. Take care of him. And if you spend more than that, when I come back, on my way back, I'll take care of it. All of this is about this intimate—I love the phrase that um, Pope Francis has used, to smell like the sheep.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: That's exactly what he means, to, to really get so close to people uh, that—and and it doesn't necessarily mean physical smell— but to so know a person, you understand the dynamic of their lives, of the dilemma of their lives, or the confusion of their lives, of what brought them to this point that gives us some empathy with them. So this story is the antithesis of thinking we can outsource care for the poor, thinking, oh, well, my tax money goes to help this person, so I don't need to be involved in this person's life. Well, this person may have some needs that go beyond what the – what any amount of money can be, and this, by the way, also applies not just to poor people who are in obviously vulnerable positions, like this this man who's been uh, beaten up and left for dead. It can be a wealthy person mm-hmm. who who is in a, a vulnerable situation, who who has has the the stink of sin and abandonment and whatever else wretchedness about them that we also have to come close to in order to, to hoist them on our beast and get, get them taken care of.
2: Yeah. Thank you for breaking that open. That's such a beautiful image around that. And I heard you say, too, that, you know, if we do farm out our responsibilities and say, oh, the government's going to take care of it. I love the way you said it limits the need for a good Samaritan in the first place, you know. Right. Right. And, right. and because we're outsourcing those moral obligations. So it, then yeah. it doesn't even give give us that call to become that good Samaritan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and it cuts us off from a rich source of spiritual nourishment, because, mm. uh, you know, what does Jesus say uh, to the extent you do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So it, the encounter with the poor is a Christological encounter. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jesus. Mother Teresa said, in a distressing disguise.
2: You know, it's so amazing you just brought that up because that was the story that just came to mind. I just read recently where Mother Teresa was uh, there with one of her sisters and it was a newer sister who was new at at serving the poor and who had been a little reticent, a little hesitant to get so close, as you said. And then all of a sudden she saw her whole countenance change and she and just the way she ministered to this dying person and mother Teresa turned and she said to her, you just saw him, didn't you? And she said, yeah. yes, I saw Jesus. Yeah. I saw Jesus in this person. That was so beautiful. Yeah.
0: You know, there's another story of mother Teresa. I always remember similar to this. She some reporter came from the West and wanted to interview mother Teresa. And, um, she, um, was tending to someone. She said, "Will you come with me? I'm, I'm ministering. You know, I'm cleaning this person." And the reporter watched cleaning this dirt off and the pus and all of the rest of it. And then Mother Teresa took the bucket and the slop and all of that and was washing up at the thing. And the reporter was retching. Hmm. And the reporter said to Mother Teresa, um, "I wouldn't do that for a million dollars." And Mother Teresa said. Well,
2: neither would I. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. That's
1: funny. You know, one thing that did come to mind before I asked the next next question was, and I think it was a pope that talked about government involvement in our personal lives, and basically yeah. said that government at best is amoral, and at worst is immoral.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: if that's wow. the highest standard we're going to reach to, then we really mm-hmm. do need to be focused on uh, what is god telling us through your parable the parables and everything how do i impact the society around me because the catholic church has been involved in more things from education to orphanages to hospitals and boots on the ground like you just said mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. so that leads me to a question because you you hear it more often um today than you ever have take it from my opinion on satan twisting the truth of the gospels like he used to and try to lead christ astray so many people look at the acts of the apostles where the early apostles lived in community gave their goods as a symbol of see christ in his church is a communist a socialist tell everybody though what's the difference between the early christian Christological perspective on mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. compared to Marx's version of it. Yeah. Well, and uh, not St. Mark, he, by the way.
0: He, <laughs> right. No, and it was Marx and Engels who said that uh, this, he, they called it primitive socialism. The Christian church uh, was primitive socialism. So, uh, do you know, the best answer to that came from Winston Churchill. Uh, he really puts it very well. He said, the. Um, the socialism of the early Christians said, all that is mine is yours. The socialism of today says, all that is yours is mine.
3: Mm.
0: What's the difference? The difference is what Christ inspired us to do in sharing our wealth and sharing our resources was that he inspired us, that the moral act was our relinquishment voluntarily to, to give of, of what we have. Today, you can't accomplish a moral end by coercing people. Uh, You know, even if your money that's been confiscated from you in the form of taxation or whatever, even if that went to help the poor, how does that spiritually benefit you if that's not your choice? Mm. So I think uh, aside from the inefficiency of government bureaucracies, which we could talk about, (laughs) the moral point is that you're not benefited. By the fact that somebody takes your money and uses it for good. You are spiritually not benefited by that.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Nor is the receiver. No, there's no
0: bond, there's no community.
2: So those themes and many others, um, we just appreciate that you've given us the benefit of seeing more deeply and richly into the parables and understanding how those do link to our lives. Father, um, as you've talked about this book, The Economics of the Parables. So as we finish up, we would, we would really appreciate if you would um, say a prayer for our listeners. Well, let
0: me let me offer my
2: blessing sure. uh,
0: in the language of the Church, in the Latin language. And you may remember this uh, and uh, receive this blessing. Dominus Fubiscum, benedicat Vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus.
2: Amen. 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 Thank you, Father. We've really appreciated Father Robert Sirico, the economics of the parables. Please join us again here in the family room next week, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us in the family room,
3: sponsored by Sprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.